Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. I think if you asked, you know, 100 investors, do you want to own companies that purposely are disregarding their impact on the environment, that are disregarding how they treat their employees, creating unsafe working environments for their employees, basing their supply chains on companies that employ human slavery or unsafe working conditions or have purposely have poor governance, I'm pretty sure 100 investors would go, no, I don't want to own those kind of businesses. Or if I do own them, I'm going to spend a lot of time trying to tell them that they're going down the wrong path because that is not the path to sustainable competitive advantage and sustainably superior returns. Hi, everyone. Today's episode focuses on ESG investing. What began as a fringe interest in socially responsible investing grew at an astonishing rate over recent years, and considering the environmental, social, and governance performance of companies is now completely mainstream. According to a PwC report from last November, ESG investing will grow over the next three years to reach over $30 trillion globally. That'd be over 20% of all assets under management, and it'd create a real force in influencing how well companies act on climate change, amongst many other issues. But ESG can be messy and confusing. To learn more about what it actually is, how it's distinguished from impact investing, why it became politically controversial in the U.S. last year, how it's performed for investors, and how it's likely to change in the future, I sat down with James Stone, Vice President of ESG Research at Barron Capital. Jamie offered a really clear overview, and I learned a ton. Hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. Here we go. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. So great to have you here today. Thanks, Jason. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Great. Where do I find you today? Are you in New York today? Yeah, I'm in our offices in Manhattan. Fantastic. We're back to work for the most part. Great. Well, I'm glad to hear it. We've got a lot to talk about, so let's get started. This conversation is focused on ESG investing, and you have a lot of experience with it. So let's get started just by learning a little bit about you, and in particular, your experience with ESG investing. So Jason, I have an interesting path to becoming the director of ESG research at Barron Capital. I started out my career in the late 1980s at a firm called Kidder Peabody as a research associate and research analyst covering energy stocks. And I was an energy analyst for various firms, including Schroeder's and UBS. As an energy analyst covering the oil field services and equipment and drilling companies for many years, and then transitioned over to the buy side, working at a hedge fund for several years and, and here at Barron Capital since 2009 
for most of that time, principally as our energy analyst and as a portfolio manager running a long-only energy mutual fund. And about four years ago, we decided to transition away from having our energy fund here and taking up the cause of seeing how ESG was evolving and would impact our portfolios on a go-forward basis. And given my experiencing in energy, which was sort of ground zero for the ESG movement for many years, climate change and carbon emissions, I put my hand up and said, I, you know, I think I'm the person to kind of lead us in this effort on a go-forward basis. And that was at the end of uh, 2018. And since then, we've really focused on incorporating the analysis of ESG factors, uh, which you know many people would consider to be sort of non-financial risks around the environment, around human capital management, around things like access to finance or access to communications, as well as you know a more fulsome examination of governance topics, just more formally incorporate that into our investment process. And we didn't take the step that a lot of other firms have taken, where we began offering ESG-focused products or bespoke climate change strategies, we have really focused on just making our process better. Tell us a bit about your firm. What is it that Barron Fund specializes in and who are your clients? So Barron Capital was founded just over 40 years ago by our CEO, Ron Barron, and we are a growth fund manager. We invest in differentiated and competitively advantaged businesses around the world that we believe will outgrow their competitors and lead to spectacular long-term returns. We run a largely series of products that are mostly mutual funds. We also have separately managed accounts for individuals as well as for institutions. Our strategies are very consistent across our portfolios. We try to find great companies that are run by great people. We want to invest in them for the long-term. We like businesses that are reinvesting in themselves in order to further their competitive advantage, to build moats around their businesses. We love businesses that have recurring revenues. And we want companies that are also doing right by their customers, by their other stakeholders, because those are the kind of businesses that are going to be sustainable growers for the long term. So let's talk about ESG and the ESG market today and where it's at. How would you describe ESG today and the recent trends in ESG in recent years? So I would say the ESG market today has slowed down in terms of, if you think of the overall market as like the trends in fund flows and perhaps the, you know, the attention that it's getting from investors and, and from governments, there are more cross currents in the market today than there have been over the last several years. That being said, last year, we still saw, according to Morningstar, a pretty significant amount of funds flowing into ESG or sustainability-oriented products, some $180 billion of positive flows into those products. And that contrasts with close to half a trillion dollars generally out of mutual funds, bond funds, things like that last year. So on a relative basis, ESG and sustainability strategies are still gaining share but the rate of change has slowed down. Secondly, you know, last year was a year in which ESG kind of came into the crosshairs, if you will, from a political standpoint, with this sort of red-blue state divide around you know, whether ESG was being termed as used as a lever of the left to advance a social agenda. 
And, you know, I think that's just part of the very hyper-partisan times that we live in. In addition, I think ESG sort of got blamed a little bit for, and maybe rightfully so, for some of the mistakes, the policy mistakes that Europe has made over the last 10 years around their energy strategy as they focused solely on decarbonization and didn't really focus enough on security and the risks around increasingly over-reliance on Russian energy last year, which you know, exposed them to quite a bit of risk in 2022. And that got all wrapped around the ESG movement, if you will. I think if you peel things back and you look and you say, okay, well, at its core, ESG is really about understanding risks at a deeper level in how you invest. And whether that's uh, the environmental risks associated with being perhaps a high carbon emitter or having a significant amount of toxic waste in your business or how you manage and your, your people, you know, if you're a technology company, managing, attracting, retaining talent or human capital management, it's a huge issue. Well, that's kind of, you know, issue number one in the, the social world, much more so than even probably diversity, although diversity is part of that equation. And so I was kind of pushed back on people who, you know, want to call ESG more of a political movement and say, you know, I want to own companies that are good businesses and good businesses treat the environment well. They treat their customers well. They treat their employees well over the long term. Otherwise, they're not sustainable businesses. You know, they're well governed, they have proper corporate governance structures. They run their business with a general counsel and a CFO and, you know, kind of other obvious things, but also have good advisors on the board of directors. Without those things, it's really hard to build a sustainably competitive enterprise for the long term. Jamie, it was interesting to me that your team is tracking not only investment dollars moving into ESG, but also client inquiries related to ESG. Tell us what you're learning about the overall interest in ESG investing and, and how it's been changing in recent years. I mean, we have definitely seen an uptick in the client inquiries around ESG that show up in our due diligence questionnaires and our requests for proposals. All of those indicators show a heightened interest. And we also see it in you know, global surveys from people like the Callan Institute and, and other entities, some of the big accounting firms, big accounting consultant firms like PwC and Deloitte have published significant surveys and studies over the last several years showing a, a meaningful uptick in the interest in the subject matter. The fact that we see it showing up in flows and towards these kind of funds is really the real world meeting the, the opinion, if you will. Again, I think some of that interest has cooled a little bit. It, it got very turbocharged during peak COVID. But when you kind of look at it over the long term, I think it's here to stay. I don't think this is a fad. I think this is going to become just a, an incorporated feature. And what's driving that? Or I should say, who's driving the interest? Is it all millennial young investors, older hippies? What do you know about who is actually interested in ESG investing? So we definitely know that millennials and Gen Z, Gen X are more interested perhaps than uh, baby boomers. And we also know that we're going to go through the greatest transfer of wealth in the history of humankind over the next 20 years or so as the baby boomers begin to fade away. And you know they are the richest generation. But we're also seeing that the interest is still quite significant at the institutional level. You know, the biggest area of institutional interest is coming out of Europe, has been out of Europe for quite a long time. And that's a combination of both policy-driven, right? So policies around sustainable investing being uh, promulgated by the EU in the UK, 
as well as driven from the bottom up through many of the large pension schemes in Europe. And that has begun to translate over into the US and into other markets around the world You know, at that kind of pension institutional family office level, other kinds of, uh, you know, what I call large institutional investors. And as well, you know, you have mutual fund companies that have built up large staffs and begin to offer more products in this area and more expertise in this area. So you have this, you know, push pull of demand. So it sounds like a real maturation in some ways of ESG field where it's not just fringe, it's not just individuals driven by one demographic, but it's really mainstream with large institutional investors being interested and there being a lot more products and a lot more knowledge and attention to the sort of investing. Yeah, I think that what you're seeing is what started off, you know, 20, 30 years ago as kind of socially responsible investing has evolved into a wider array of strategies. So you have a strategy around like such as ESG integration, which is integrating ESG fully into the investment process, but not necessarily making it determinative. Then you have strategies around impact. And impact can be investing with an outcome that you're trying to achieve, right? When I think of ESG integration, ESG integration is about maximizing the inputs but the output is still the best risk-adjusted returns that you can deliver as a fiduciary. An impact strategy may, in fact, sacrifice that fiduciary responsibility or the fiduciary duty to have the best risk-adjusted returns because the output is expected to be, say, climate change reduction or a gender lens. And in that case, the client knows or should know what they're investing in. And, and one of the things we're seeing is a, a a concerted effort both in, by the US SEC and the EU to have more clarity around fund labels and in fund documents as to what is the aim of the fund and how ESG is incorporated into the product. Because if it is around integration, then, you know, again, risk adjusted returns continue to be the focus of the end product. And that's what you're selling to your clients. But if it's impact, that should be clearly spelled out as well. And there are a number of different ways you can achieve impact. The difficulty, obviously, is in, in measuring it. And so I think over the next five years, you're going to see that ESG integration just becomes another set of tools in your investment toolbox. And ESG impact or sustainable investing impact will be its own sort of directed set of investments. Thanks, Jamie. That's really helpful clarification. You talked about ESG integration is really about taking a closer look at some risks and trying to consider those as being material and significant for the businesses that you're looking at. And I've seen in your ESG commentary that you've pointed to the World Economic Forum study on total global risks as reflecting the rising importance of environmental issues for investors. In 2021, four of the top five global risks in terms of likelihood and three of the top in terms of impact are fundamentally environmental risks. Tell us about this research and how it informs your view. The reason why we highlighted that study from 2021, and the WEF uh, has historically put out its list of the top 10 global risks for the last 15 or 20 years. And the reason we highlighted it is we really saw that it was a shift in emphasis if you go back into the, say, mid-2000s, the risks were more around political events or financial events. And the, the fact that they have shifted towards more climate-oriented events or risks really just shows how investors need to respond in what they consider to be important 
when they're analyzing an, an investment. And so if the risks associated with climate change or risks associated with biodiversity, which is a much less understood risk by most investors, myself included, as those become more important and more impactful to companies, we as investors have to do a better job of analyzing them. And so the fact that the risk landscape is changing goes back and speaks to what I talked about earlier, which is widening the aperture of our lens and really thinking about how we consider not only the risks, but where you have risk, you often have opportunity, right? And so the fact that much of the world is very focused on the risks related to climate change today, they are also focused on how to mitigate those risks and on driving investment towards areas perhaps that can help either further the energy transition, reduce carbon emissions, slow down the pace of biodiversity, decrease uh, the impacts of plastic pollution or things like that. So you have both risk and you have opportunity. And as investors, we have to think about them both. Great. That's really good to know is that it's not just about how these risks might interfere or disrupt a business, but also how is that company getting proactive and thinking about them as a changing marketplace opportunity and something to invest in to improve their business for the long term. Let's dive into those risks just a little bit more to better understand them. The top environmental risks include extreme weather, climate action failure, human environmental damage, biodiversity loss, and natural resource crises. Are these risks showing up already and are they making material difference on your investments? These risks are showing up in the boardroom. They're showing up in the way that companies consider their strategies and their long-term investment decisions and their capital allocation strategies. And so we're seeing much more focus from the C-suite and the boardroom around how these risks may impact their business. Like if you're a real estate company, how may you know climate change and uh, either extreme weather events, rising sea levels impact where you're investing in real estate or what you're doing with your overall portfolio? There is a lot of concern over the long term that companies face around whether or not there will be a price on carbon at some point, mitigating the carbon emissions in their business with a look forward to not wanting to have to pay that tax should a tax materialize. You know, clients are interested in these things. They're interested in how companies are, again, thinking about their long-term strategy. But I don't want to be overly focused only on the risks around climate, because at Barron, we actually have a very low exposure to the energy industry. We have very low exposure to carbon emitters. Uh, most of our companies, the risks that they face are really around uh, social factors, around things like human capital management, as I spoke about before. We own a lot of businesses where the assets of the firm go drive into the parking lot every morning and drive home every night, or go up the elevators in the morning and, and down at night. Understanding how companies are managing human capital in a more challenged employment environment, such as developed over the last several years, is very important to us. We own a lot of companies that are involved in the technology industry or related portions to technology, and therefore issues around cybersecurity, around data privacy are paramount for our analysts to understand. We own a lot of companies that are, you know, working on expanding consumer access to healthcare or to finance and therefore taking advantage of certain trends in the world like digitization that is enabling 
more access to these services for underserved populations. So it's not only about risk and it's not only about climate, you know, balancing risk and opportunity and looking for what is material to the businesses you own and invest in. Because, you know, not every company has a material climate related risk. If we owned a, you know, a bank, I wouldn't be spending a lot of time thinking about the bank's carbon footprint. I may be spending a lot of time thinking about their financed emissions, but not necessarily, you know, their physical carbon emissions. Great. So ESG, of course, is broader than just climate. And thanks for outlining some of the ways that social factors and the governance factors layer into that. And I'm curious about something else that you wrote. It caught my eye. The idea that the growing number of ESG investors and the growing amount of capital deployed creates what you termed a positive feedback loop. Tell us more. What is that loop and what does it mean to you? There's a couple of ways we think about the positive feedback loop. One is that just more capital flowing into ESG or sustainability specific funds is likely to concentrate more investment in the kinds of names that would show up in those portfolios. That's just a fact of supply demand, right? You know, there's an old saying that uh, someone asks, well, why'd the stock go up today? And, you know, the quick quip is because there are more buyers than sellers. Well, that's not really true. There's always the same number of buyers and sellers. There are just either more ardent buyers or more desperate sellers. You know, the flow of capital creates that imbalance between supply and demand that either pushes up the value of, of an investment or pushes it down. You know, if there's a lot more capital chasing a limited number of shares that can be bought that day, then the price goes up and vice versa. And so the fact that we see more capital flowing into sustainable oriented investments has the potential to at least, you know, for the long term, lead to, you know, better returns in the sector or at least positive outcomes. The other way that that feedback loop works, though, is, again, rising interest in the topic, in the subject matter is likely to course from investors to corporates back to investors. And so you you know you have this loop of dialogue, right? Well, what's important to you? Well, then we're going to change our strategy because it's important to our investors. Well, as they change their strategy and the investors see the outcome of that strategy, they will then decide, you know, was that a good move? If it was a good move, we'd like you to do more. And so you can see how that would affect the way businesses are run and operated. And you know how investment capital or capital allocation at the corporate level can also be influenced by this feedback loop. Okay, let's talk about if that's actually happening. ESG interest in investments is one thing, but let's talk about performance. Has that positive feedback loop been resulting in better returns for investors? So I would say that the literature on this, the academic literature on this remains very mixed. There have been a lot of studies done about how to measure ESG performance how to benchmark it relative to the market. And what I would say is most of the research we've seen is, I would say, neutral to positive. So the vast majority shows that ESG has some impact in, depending on how it's applied, can have a, a moderately positive impact. Last year, a lot of ESG funds struggled because of the lack of energy, lack of oil and gas exposure. And so that contributed to that sort of ESG backlash last year where the, mon- the armchair quarterbacks were going, see, I told you, you're going to have a problem if you exclude energy. Or I told you ESG was, was going to have a, a negative impact from a fiduciary standpoint. That being said, I mean, just looking at some numbers around broad-based indexes, 
S&P has a ESG index. They have an ESG S&P 500. And if you look at the ESG S&P 500 last year, basically in line with the S&P 500 last year. If you look at it on a five-year basis, it has outperformed the S&P 500 by 900 basis points. There is a clean energy ETF called the, the iShares Clean Energy ETF. In the last 12 months, that outperformed the S&P 500 by 2x. In the last five years, it's outperformed the S&P 500 by two and a half times. Morningstar tracks all of the ESG ETFs and sustainability mutual funds. And their U.S. sustainability index last year basically performed in line with the S&P 500. It declined by 19%, and the S&P 500 last year was down 19.4%. So would I state conclusively that ESG adds to performance? I would say it's unlikely to hurt performance in a material way, you know, maybe in a short-term basis, you know, six months, three months, six months, a year. But over the long term, it's probably likely to lead to better stock selection, owning better companies, owning better run businesses. And that's kind of what we've seen with the performance of some of these broader indices. Jamie, last year, there were some rather big developments on the global stage and also in policy. Of course, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia disrupted markets in in incredible ways. Also, the Infrastructure Act and the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States made a big difference in terms of climate progress and, and climate investments. And then there was the UN Climate Change Conference in Egypt in November. How would you describe the impact of these policy developments, particularly in terms of climate investing within ESG? What we're seeing is significant amounts of government support flowing into the topic of, of trying to address the energy transition and uh, decarbonization. And the Inflation Reduction Act is one of the more poorly named pieces of legislation because I'm not sure it will actually have much to do with inflation, but it really is a, a clean energy act. The vast majority of the spending, much of which is appears to be open-ended, will aid the investment in batteries, in electric vehicle charging, in hydrogen production, green hydrogen production, in the production of carbon capture facilities and, and the likes. It's you know a very significant level of investment that is uh, likely to be matched around the globe. The European Union is quite upset right now with the US government and thinks that the investment, that the Inflation Reduction Act you know, may be a, a violation, a trade violation because of its Buy America provisions, but the EU itself is in the process of debating and likely rolling out its own net zero investment initiative, which will counter the US's, the IRA. Some of this is also in response to the concerns that you know, we may be transitioning away from an energy model that has been historically reliant on the likes of OPEC and Russia to another energy model, which could be reliant on China, because China has the most capacity when it comes to lithium refining, when it comes to battery manufacturing and solar manufacturing. And so there is a concern, you know, within the, the governments in the EU and the UK, as well as uh, at the US, that we not you know, transition from reliance on one set of autocracies to another set of autocracies. That's kind of where you might get to the point where this is not the Inflation Reduction Act, because security of supply and access to locally manufactured goods may actually prove to be inflationary over the long term, because you're duplicating supply chains. 
That's interesting. Jamie, you also brought up how last year ESG became quite controversial and became quite political. And some would say that there's really been a backlash to ESG investing. I'd love to hear in your words, just what do you think really happened? And what do you think of this backlash going forward? Will it continue to be so political? And are there really important political stakes that will continue to be fought over the battlefield of ESG? So number one, I would say that ESG is largely political just in the United States. It is not political in Europe or not politically controversial in Europe. And I don't, and despite the challenges that the European Union is facing post the Russian invasion of Ukraine around energy security and supply, there does not seem to be a desire to turn back the clock. They actually seem to be more interested in accelerating investment in the energy transition to create a new type of security around energy supply that is uh, not reliant on Russian energy and not reliant on China. And other initiatives within the EU and within the UK are really very forward thinking or forward moving on ESG, whether it's around fund labeling and clarifying what are sustainable investments. But we don't see any really backing off, if you will, in sentiment there. In the US, it's just become another issue that plays into the hands of the very deeply divided political landscape that we have in the US, where we have this, you know, 50-50 country that has gotten, you know, where the center has been hollowed out a little bit, at least in terms of the loudest voices. And ESG, it's easy to sort of think of stakeholder capitalism as a huge divergence away from shareholder primacy and, you know, rereading the texts of, of Milton Friedman, whether or not he was an advocate for stakeholder capitalism or not, and focusing in on this red-blue divide and labeling ESG as woke investing. I mean, there's you have a an entity that created a new asset management company that effectively, you know, calls itself an anti-woke investor. Uh, and what they do, their first product that they put out that was going to be the anti-ESG, they started a conventional energy fund. So, hmm. you know, I mean, I'll go back to what I said before. I think if you asked, you know, 100 investors, do you want to own companies that purposely are disregarding their impact on the environment, that are disregarding how they treat their employees, creating unsafe working environments for their employees, basing their supply chains on companies that employ human slavery or unsafe working conditions or have purposely have poor governance. I'm pretty sure 100 investors would go, no, I don't want to own those kind of businesses. Or if I do own them, I'm going to spend a lot of time trying to tell them that they're going down the wrong path because that is not the path to sustainable competitive advantage and sustainably superior returns. And there's a ton of research that has been done that shows that companies that perform poorly in those ways, you know, have historically poor environmental or safety records, that they're more likely and more susceptible to business failures and to negative financial events. You don't know when they're going to happen, but the likelihood of, of them happening for, to companies that have poor policies, poor practices, poor procedures in place are higher. Jamie, we talked about the positive feedback loop as driving more interest in ESG investing and potentially creating better returns for the investors. But what about in terms of the impact on the companies themselves? Is interest in ESG investing actually encouraging them and helping them become better companies and become better long-term stewards of the environment? So I think that's true. We definitely see more and more companies that are focused on 
understanding, first understanding what their impact on the environment is, undertaking the process of discovering their carbon emissions and creating a baseline level to see where they need to move. And I think there is a general consensus among most companies that it's in their long-term interest to reduce their carbon footprint, to increase perhaps their investment in renewable energy or sourcing renewable energy for their operations, to focus on being better stewards of the environment for the long term. I also think that having a proactive viewpoint from as a management and as a board of directors around managing ESG risk and opportunity helps them in their business. It can help them in terms of their attractiveness to customers. For example, let's say you're a a manufacturing company within the supply chain of a larger organization. We know those larger organizations are very focused on supply chain audits. And so they want to make sure that their suppliers meet their standards. And the standards are going up around, again, around treatment of employees, around sourcing of raw materials and things like that, about being able to document and detail that information. So knowledge and understanding your operation and and your own supply chain is very important. Secondly, you know, consumers, for example, have shown a preference for uh, clean products. Employees have shown a preference for working for companies that they believe you know, think about them, believe in them, empower them, and are headed in the right direction from both an environmental and a social standpoint. So yeah, I think ESG is important. That positive feedback loop is important. And it's one of the reasons why we see more emphasis at the board of directors within the product strategy portions of companies in the way in which companies are allocating capital. It's all part and parcel of that theme. Jamie, let's look ahead to this year. There's much anticipation for the SEC's climate disclosure rule change. What will that include and how will it influence things? It's still not clear where the SEC is going to come down on their climate change disclosures. My best guess is that they will roll out mandatory disclosures of carbon emissions, scope one and scope two carbon emissions that will phase in over the next several years for all you know, registered companies in the US. And this is fairly consistent with what we're seeing coming out of the UK and the EU. I think it will be much more difficult for them to mandate scope three disclosures, just given fuzzy accounting around scope three. But I think you'll see that come forward. I also would expect that we will get more clarity from the International Sustainability Standards Board, the ISSB, which is a kind of like the FASB, if you will, but for sustainability standards and accounting on a global basis, they will be rolling out their best recommendations around climate and and then around other issues for how to account for different parts of ESG within companies' disclosures. There's a lot there. We also expect that we'll see more clarity around disclosure regimes in Europe and in Asia that Uh, put forward, you know, companies putting out more detail around their carbon footprint. And I think the SEC may also begin to take up uh, disclosures around human capital. Jamie, are there any other policy developments that you're watching for this year? I think the biggest policy developments that we're looking at this year will be the finalization of where Europe falls on its own climate initiatives and, and energy transition investment plans. I think between that and how companies increasingly respond to the Inflation Reduction Act's incentives and the Infrastructure Act's incentives will be things to watch this year. Jamie, we've touched on a lot of things. I suppose it's time to ask your thoughts about the future and future opportunities. 
What are your thoughts about ESG and the opportunity for ESG investing this year and longer term? So I think we're seeing a transition in ESG investing, this, what I would call this uh, schism between the integration crowd and the impact crowd. And I think you're going to see clearer labeling of funds this year, both because of what's happening with the EU's sustainable finance directives, as well as from the SEC, so that investors have a clearer idea and understanding of the product that they're investing in. And I think you'll also see as the dollars flow out of these government programs and with more private capital focused on energy transition, I think you're also going to see greater opportunities develop in that area. But to me, probably the biggest trend is kind of a clear understanding of what the products are, what the opportunities are for the long term around ESG. And for investors particularly interested in climate change, what are some things that they should consider? If you're really focused on climate change, I think the hard part is, do you solely focus on sort of new energy technology oriented companies or funds that are, are stocked with you know, solar or wind companies? Or do you kind of look at the, over, the broader landscape of how companies are transitioning perhaps away from oil or coal, using gas as a, as a transition fuel, whether or not there's an opportunity to invest in nuclear? I think that landscape is still developing. And I don't think there's you know, perfect clarity. The second thing I would say, and, and this is one of the hard things that we really struggle with, there's a lot of interesting themes that are connected to ESG. And the hard part for us has always been finding great businesses and great business models that provide that exposure. And I'll give you an example. Like We see a tremendous amount of future growth in the solar business. But we've had a really hard time finding, you know, solar businesses or even kind of renewable energy companies that aren't just really commoditized players or financial engineering type companies. And therefore, it's been a difficult area for us to invest in. We still look and we're constantly looking for for ideas there, but it's not been one that we've found a, a ton of great ideas where we have found some good ideas in areas around, you know, thinking about the circular economy, you know, around companies that offer recycling opportunities and things like that. Or in the electric vehicle market, we've, we've had a very high profile investment for a long time that we've made a lot of money in, in that market. And so we do see some areas that have been attractive, but really finding good businesses in a set of industries that are still maturing and still figuring out what are the best business models. That's been a challenge for us. Jamie, thank you for all of this insight. If I was a listener, I would, of course, be really intrigued now by who is this Jamie Stone guy and what is this firm that's behind him and what are the ways that I might be able to work with them. So for listeners that are interested in knowing more about what Barron is offering and how to work with Barron, what should they know? So I think the first thing you should know is that we continue to move down the ESG integration path. We think that Focusing and having our analysts spend more time thinking about the ESG issues, both from a risk and from an opportunity standpoint, will make us better investors. That being said, you know, our primary mission is still to deliver the best risk-adjusted rates of return to our investors. And we have a very long track record of outperforming the, the market and outperforming our benchmarks across something like 98% of our strategies over a 5, 10, and 15-year period. And we're not going to vary or deviate from our mission, which is to enhance the retirement accounts of, of all of our clients. So 
ESG to us is a factor. It's an important factor. We think that it helps us understand our businesses better. It provides us an opportunity to engage in dialogue with our companies in a more deeper, more meaningful fashion and understand their strategies for the long term. But it's embedded across all of our mutual funds and, and all of our you know, different bespoke strategies. You know, we have some strategies that you know, have taken a more aggressive position around electric vehicle area, for example, where we've been large owners of Tesla for many years. But we have other strategies like our emerging market strategy, which embraces sustainability as one of its core themes in how it invests, you know, how it identifies companies that we that it thinks is going to have differentiated growth over the next several years. So there are a lot of different ways to look at ESG. We think the most important way is, is to use it as a tool to make us more risk aware and more opportunity aware investors. Jamie, thank you a ton for all of your time today and all these rich insights. My pleasure, Jason. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.